Good morning. Good morning. I, was, I saw the lock-in thing up there, and Joseph, I don't think I've told him this, but when I was doing youth ministry, which for 20-some for years, well, I'm still doing it, actually, but youth ministry, I only allowed one lock-in a year because it took me like a week to recover. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I can't do this. Just staying up all night. But it was great. Lock-ins are great. Um, these things that are on your seat right now, they're not there just for decoration. I would love for you to take them with you. You can take more than one, grab two, grab three, whatever, and say you go out to a restaurant, you can leave it on the table. I don't want you to you know, do anything that you're gonna get arrested for, obviously, but uh, you know, just leave it places that you think, or just there's nothing like a personal invitation. Hey, this is what we're doing in our church. It's a series on the Gospel of Luke. Would love for you to come and invite them personally. Nothing like that. That's one reason I became a Christian. Someone personally invited me to a youth conference. And well, I know God was part of it, but they were part of it, so that's really important. Okay, before I get started this morning, I had a special prayer request that's come in from David. David was playing guitar up here, Dave Pruitt, and his dad had open heart surgery last week and has had a difficult time. And he went home and they've taken him back to the hospital with complications. So would you, pr would you pray with me? Would you pray with me just a special prayer for David Pruitt Sr.? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for uh, David, and we thank you for David Sr. Just pray uh, right now as he's being prepped and going into surgery, we pray for your special help for him, and your special care for him. Uh, we know that you love him more than we ever could, and some of us know him, some of us don't, but we lift him up to you just in this very special time and ask for your protection and your care for him. We pray that you would give the doctors and the nurses wisdom and sight beyond sight and help them to practice their art with skill. And um, just help them to know what will, um, what will fix the problem. We pray in your name, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Thank you so much for doing that. Um, I've known David Jr. since he was in, I guess, just out of middle school. So I've known him for quite some time. Um, well, this morning, I'd like to welcome you back to our sermon series on the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it's subtitled, the, the Life and Teachings of Jesus Christ, because that's what it is, right? That's what it is. That's what all four Gospels are about. The life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. Who he is, why he came, um, how he lived, what he did, and what he said, his teachings. Uh, the word gospel is very simple. It means good news or good proclamation. The Greek word is euangelion or euangelisma, which is where we get the word evangelism from. It's the same word. Uh, the gospels are called that because they record the good news um, that a way of salvation has been opened to humanity. A way, you hear that? A way of salvation has been opened to humanity through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why the early church was initially called the way. You know, it wasn't called uh, Christianity for a long time. It wasn't called the church, actually, for a long time. It was called the way. The Greek for that is ha-hadas. Ha-hadas. Because it's a way of salvation, Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life, right? Jesus is the way. He's the door. He's the pathway to be made right with God. 
right? Because of sin, we've been separated from God, and he's the pathway to make us right with God, to be forgiven by God, redeemed by God, and reconciled to God, which means to be brought back together like a couple that's been divorced. That's a reconciliation. Jesus made that possible. No one, he said, no one comes to the Father but through me. The Gospels contain and proclaim that good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. It's the Gospel, the good news. Um, here's a little bit of background of information on all of the Gospels, okay? The four Gospels that we have were all written in the first century, either by apostles like Matthew and John or associates of the apostles like Mark and Luke. They were disciples of the disciples. They weren't disciples, but disciples of the disciples. Uh, the Gospels are all about the life and teachings of Jesus Christ, but they are all unique and special in their own way. Okay, Matthew appears to be written to the Jewish community, Mark to the Romans, Luke to the Greeks, and John to the Christian church as a whole, Jews and Greeks and everybody. Uh, I love the way that John says it in the last two verses of his gospel. He says this, right at the very end, last two verses. He said, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. That's what it says. I love that ending. But it's also hugely frustrating for me. <laughs> it's frustrating for me because I want to know more about all the other things, right, that Jesus did and said. But we don't have them. We don't. We have the four Gospels, and Luke gives us a lot, but, but there's so much that the Gospels do not tell us. Um, week before last, Luke chapter 5 ended up with Jesus teaching a parable on the new cloth and the old cloth the new wineskins and the old wineskins. He was contrasting the new and the old, as in the new covenant and the old covenant. Jesus did not come to abolish the old covenant or the law, as we, we talked about, but he came to fulfill it. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. The kingdom of God came in Jesus Christ. It was something new. We, you are the new cloth. You are the new wineskins. Somebody texted me a couple weeks ago after my sermon. They said, oh, Pastor John, thanks for that message. We're the new wineskins. They got it. They got it. See, we're the new cloth that Jesus was talking about. We're the new wineskins. We are the new covenant, and we are born again. Born again. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says it this way. He says, therefore... If anyone is in Christ, anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. We are the new things. The church. The wineskins. The new covenant. Today, chapter 6 starts off with another example of Jesus taking it to a whole new level as far as power and authority, power and authority. And the issue today, okay, is the Sabbath day. It's the seventh day. It's the fourth commandment. We all know the Ten Commandments, right? The fourth commandment is about the Sabbath 
day. It's a pretty, that makes it a pretty big deal. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12, 13, and 14, it says this. It says, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your sons or your daughters or your servants or your donkey or your cattle. And it goes on and on and on and wraps up with you shall observe or keep the Sabbath day. It's a very long, a lot of the commandments, there's no explanation, you know, murder, steal, and all that. But this one there, it comes with that explanation with it. In Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees had become hyper-legalistic. And hyper-legalistic is an understatement. They were very legalistic about the Sabbath day. They had rabbis through the year, had written entire books about what was work and what was not work. What was okay to do on the Sabbath? And what was not okay to do on the Sabbath, down to the minutest details, these, all these books on the Sabbath. And in these verses, Jesus is bringing something new, a new interpretation. Remember, he's the fulfillment of the law, but he is, uh, that also means that he is the authoritative interpretation of the law. And that's what he does in this part of Luke. Here the Pharisees accuse Jesus and his disciples of doing what is unlawful against the law, the law, on the Sabbath. His response is, oh yeah, well, I don't think so. Now, it's John Blake translation, but that's basically what he says to them. Yeah, I don't think so. Okay? He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, speaking of himself. In other words, he decides what is lawful on the Sabbath. So I want you to listen for that as I read verses 1 through 11 of chapter 6. And if you want to follow along with me, I believe it's going to be up on the screen. Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on the Sabbath. That's Jesus. And his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. Now, ordinarily with grain, what they would do in Israel is there was what was called a threshing floor. And they would beat the husks and the kernels off of the thing, and then the husks would break off, and the kernel would go out, and the kernel was heavy, but the husk was like the chaff. You remember separating the, the wheat from the chaff? That's what they, and they would throw it up, and the wind would blow the chaff away, and they would come down. Well, what the disciples were doing was they were doing that sort of manually, in a small, small way, rubbing them between their hands, separating the husk, and then eating the kernels. That's what they were doing. But some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them and said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, and he and those with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone? And he gave it to his companions. And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, not this Sabbath, another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man whose hand was withered. Don't know exactly what that means. It was probably atrophied. It was dysfunctional. You know, sometimes that happens to people, nerve issues or whatever. We don't know. But his hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees were watching Jesus closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might have a reason to accuse him. Well, that's a great motivation, right? They're just waiting. Watch this. You know? kind of out to get him already. 
okay? But he knew that. He knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, he's talking to the Pharisees, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to destroy it? After looking around at them, he said to him, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and the hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord God, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight today, O Lord. We pray that you would show uh, that these teachings that you're going to give us today, how do they apply to our lives? Not to everybody else's lives, but how do they apply to our lives? What is it that you're calling us to do? You're our Lord. You are the one that we follow. We pray that you would teach us. Lord, um, by the power of your Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear, spiritual ears to hear what you are saying to your church. In your name, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. So Jesus promptly puts the Pharisees and the scribes back on their heels, right? He puts them in their place by asking them a question and performing a miracle to seal the deal. The miracle is to demonstrate his authority, why he can say what he does. He says, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to destroy a life? Now, that's a question they obviously cannot answer. It's going to get them in trouble one way or the other, right? And that's why he asked it to them, to try and show them the, a, a new interpretation. And he says, and looking at them, he looked probably right in the eye, he says to the man with the withered hand, he says, stretch out your hand, and it's restored. Boom. This is a drop the mic moment, right? For Jesus, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying, I decide what's appropriate on the Sabbath. I have authority. And saying that about the Sabbath, which is the fourth commandment, he's also saying, I'm the final authority when it comes to the law and to the prophets and the writings. I'm the authority of that. And when Jesus does this, they get their Pharisee feelings hurt, don't they? Yeah. Because why? Well, because they're used to everybody coming to them for the answers, right? They're used to being the authority. And here Jesus steps in and in a big way. He's the authority. And he's not making them look so good either, right? Not making them look so good. So they get their feelings hurt. In fact, they're enraged. Verse 11 says, But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Well, what do they want to do? They want to fix his wagon, right? Which doesn't mean fix your wagon. It means do away with you, right? That's what they're thinking. Something bad. This next section, verses 12 through 19, is select the selecting of the disciples, not the calling of the disciples. That was in the last chapter, right? We had Peter and his associates who were James and John and then Levi, the tax gatherer. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on this because it's self-explanatory, but listen as I read verses 12 through 19. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12, 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, he lists them here, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became the traitor. 
Jesus came down with them from where he was and stood on a level place, and there was a crowd of his disciples there and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal regions of Tyre and Sidon, which is over on the coast of Israel on the Mediterranean Sea. All who had come to hear him to be healed of their diseases and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the people were trying to touch him for the power was coming from him and healing them all. So just a couple things, not many, just a couple things. We see that Levi is now called Matthew, just so there's no confusion. I talked about that in the last chapter. They are both in the same, just like Peter is known as Simon and Peter, Matthew is also Levi, but he's listed here as Matthew. Same person, same person. Also, we see that Jesus had lots of disciples. It said there was a great crowd of disciples. If you've, if you've read, I'm sure you have read the resurrection accounts, it talks about how there were about 120 other people, not just the disciples, but the 12, but other disciples, about 120. So there was a great crowd, a great multitude of his disciples. The 12 were his inner circle that he chose. And also there was an inner circle within the inner circle of the 12, which was Peter, Andrew, James, and John, right? They were kind of like his inner squad, his God squad, those four guys, confidants. Next is what we call the Beatitudes, specifically Luke's Beatitudes, because they are rather unique. They're similar to Matthew's, but not exact, okay? They are unique to Luke in the way that they are configured in language and structure, okay? Luke sets it up kind of as this tandem back and forth comparison between, listen to this, the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor, those who are living the good life and those who are having a rough life of poverty, those who have all they need and more and those who have nothing and less. He kind of divides it up that way. And all through Luke, we observe in his gospel an emphasis on compassion in the teachings of Jesus and in the actions of Jesus. Compassion for the poor, compassion for the sick, compassion for the hurting and broken people of the world. That's Jesus. That's his life. That's his teachings. Remember when Jesus started his public ministry in chapter 4, just after the temptations in the wilderness. He stood up in the synagogue in Nazareth, which was his hometown, and he read from the prophet Isaiah. You remember? And it was a prophecy about himself, the Messiah. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. Boom. Right there. Right there. Boom. Right at the beginning. He goes on, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden and oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's him saying, this is what I'm here to do. You hear that emphasis right at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Compassion. Compassion for the poor. Compassion for the hurting. Compassion for the broken people of the world, the struggling people of the world. And we will also hear today in these Beatitudes the responsibility that I have to share. The responsibility I have to share. I'm someone who has more than enough by the world's standards. I'm actually very wealthy. Wealthier than 85% of the world's population statistically, right? 
So I'm, I'm wealthy. I'm on the rich side of what he's talking about here. Luke, by presenting these teachings of Jesus, is reminding me of that. But also he's reminding us of that. Jesus wants us to be generous. That's what this is partially about. He wants us to be generous. He wants us to share what we have. He wants us to be compassionate to those in need. Jesus is our example. You're going to hear that in verses 20 through 26 of the Beatitudes. So listen as I read. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, so he's focused on the disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. In other words, you don't have enough food now, you're going to have enough food someday. Right? And he's talking about the, he's talking about heaven. He's talking about after this life. You will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now. Your life is tough now, but you shall laugh. There's a reward waiting for you in heaven. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man, speaking of himself, be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. And here in verse 24, he pivots from the poor to the rich, from the downtrodden to those who... It's good life, right? He says, but woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. In other words, you got it now? You got it. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So what he's saying there is not it's wrong to be rich. What he's saying there is it's wrong to be greedy and to be selfish and to not see the needs of others around it, be able to help, and then not help. That's what he's saying. Woe to you when all men speak well of you and their fathers used to treat, used to treat the false prophets in the same way. In other words, they didn't even recognize those are false prophets. They didn't get it, okay? And those people are not going to get it either, right? So that's pretty graphic, isn't it? It's very blunt. It's very blunt, very clear. Jesus follows up these Beatitudes with what Bible scholars have called rules of the kingdom or kingdom rules. I call them the what rules. That's what I call them, laughing, jokingly. Because the reason I say that is because when people actually sit down and read Luke, even people who have been Christians for a very long time, born, baptized, raised in the church, even when they read these kingdom rules, they're like, what? I didn't know that was in there, right? That's right. That's what they're saying. They, they see these and they say, that's hard. That's not my philosophy. I don't agree with that. Okay? That's weird. I'm not, sure, I don't, I'm not sure I can do that, and I'm not sure I even want to do that. It's like, what in the world? What? What? So as I work through these 11 verses, and like, like with the Beatitudes there, don't be surprised if you sit there and you're listening to these and you think to your head, what? Okay? Don't feel bad because I, I do it too. Okay? 27 through 38. Let me read them for you. But I say to you who hear, in other words, if you're paying attention, if you're really listening, if you really want to know what, I'm, what I think, what is right, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. What? Right? Do good to those who hate you. Say what? Right? 
Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. You've got to be kidding me, right? Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Really? Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Doesn't fit with the world's philosophy, does it? It's very different. You see, this is not natural law. This is not what is naturally human and what we come about to think. This is supernatural. These are the teachings of Jesus about the kingdom of God. And then comes, then comes the, um, the golden rule. Treat others the same way you want. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. My dad used to talk about this. After he got sober, we'd sit around and have conversations on Saturday. He'd say, John, I don't know how it works. I don't know why it works. He says, but when we live the golden rule, life goes better. It just does. Just that. Just living the golden rule makes life better. That's the way my dad taught it to me. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? In other words, does that make you special? nothing special about that. If you love those who love you, for even sinners, he said, love those who love them. We're supposed to love people that don't love us. That's what he's saying. That's the supernatural. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. That's nothing special. That's what he's saying. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what is credit is that to you? What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend in order to receive back the same amount. Oh, and even interest, right? Didn't say that, but but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. That's the example. To love and to be kind to people who are ungrateful and evil people. What? Right? Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. In other words, how you do is how will be done. Right? How you live. Do unto others, right? Golden rule. Golden rule. So just to be clear, that last verse, verse 38, is not prosperity doctrine like we hear on TV all the time. That's not prosperity doctrine. Jesus is not saying, give so that you will get. That's not what he's saying. It's not that kind of a formula. Don't give to get. But he is saying, listen, he is saying, be generous. To those in need. You can't outgive God. You will be blessed and receive good things if you are generous and compassionate to the needy, to the needs of others. It will come back to you. That's what he's saying. Somehow you will get more than you can give. Now, not necessarily monetarily, but in some other way, right? But it'll come back to you. But in some way, you will receive more than you can give to others. You can't outgive God. That's what Jesus is saying. Be generous. God will bless you when you are generous. But this is not about, okay, giving that Christmas present to the person that you know who has everything. That's not what he's talking about with giving here. Okay? He's talking about people who need something. They don't have something. 
helping people, the poor, the needy, the hurting. Luke chapter 6 closes with two parables. Are you guys okay? It's kind of rough, isn't it? You all right? Is you okay? Can I keep going? Should I come back next week? Well, okay, all right, here we go. I'll keep going. This is the parable of the blind leading the blind, okay? And it is a fleshing out of some of the kingdom rules, such as don't judge and don't condemn. He's saying don't be a judgmental busybody trying to straighten out everybody else's shorts. But instead, work on who? Yeah. John needs to work on John and not run around and tell everybody what they're doing wrong. Okay? There's a time for that, a place for that. But he said, that's not what we're supposed to focus on. He said, too often I have found this, that people listen to sermons for uh, someone else. You ever know, you know what I'm talking about? They li- they're listening to the sermon, but they're listening, oh, so-and-so needs to hear that. Like when I preached on marriage before, you can almost hear the husbands losing their breath because they're being elbowed by their wife, right? Right? Because the wife or the husband, they're listening for their spouse. They're not listening for themselves. They're like, oh, so-and-so really needs to hear this. Listen, this is important. This is what Jesus is saying. We need to listen to the teachings of Jesus for us. For us. Not for other people. But we tend to do that. We do. Oh, this doesn't apply to me. So-and-so, right? In this parable, Jesus fleshes that out, and he tacks it down for us. Listen to verse 39 and 40. And he also spoke a parable to him. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? Well, yeah, you're going to run into something, right? Not a good idea. And then he says this, A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. I love that. Everyone after he or she has been fully trained will be like his teacher. Who's our teacher? Jesus. Okay? We can't say, oh, those kingdom rules are not for me. Okay? They must be for somebody else. I can't do that, and I don't want to do that. I'm not that kind of Christian. Well, that's what a Christian is, right? That's not me. No, we are pupils. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. We are not above our teacher. But everyone, after having been fully trained, will be like our teacher. Jesus is our teacher. Jesus is our example for compassion for everything. Jesus is our Lord. He's the one we, what? Follow. He's the one we follow. Verse 41 and 42 expound on do not judge or condemn. This is a, this is a very cool parable. It says, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Some translations actually say the splinter, you know, like a little teeny, you get that little painful splinter. Don't try and get the splinter out of your brother's eye. When you've got a log in your own eye. In verse 42, and how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the splinter or the speck that is in your eye when you yourself don't see the log, this big log that's in your own eye. You hypocrite. He said, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the splinter or the speck out of your brother's eye. Our focus should not be to straighten out other people's shorts. It's not our job. Not my job. But instead, take the log out of your own eye 
work on you. I need to work on me. That should be our focus. You see, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but it's much easier to find fault in other people than ourselves. Did you ever notice that? You walk down the street and you go, why are they wearing that? You know, and here I, and here I am looking like, well, well, I won't tell you. I'm not exactly a dresser, you know that. Okay, but it's so much easier to see the imperfection in other people than ourselves, unless you've got this super self-critical thing, in which case it's not for you. But most people are like that. It's easy to see imperfections in others and not in ourselves. We kind of have blinders on when it comes to that. Okay, this parable ends with an obvious truth, and this is the John Blake translation of that obvious truth. Our behavior should match our belief in Christ. Right? Our behavior should match the teachings, the life and teachings of the teacher, who is Jesus Christ. That's the obvious truth here. If we say we are followers of Jesus Christ, there should be evidence of that. Right? Now, I'm not saying we need to be perfect. I am certainly not perfect. I tell you that. Nobody's perfect. But if we say we are followers of Jesus Christ, there should be some fruit. And that's what he's about to tell us here. Listen to 43, 44, and 45. He says, For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Think about that last sentence. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. The fruit reflects what is in the heart. The fruit of our lips, the fruit of our actions, the fruit of our speech. That reflects what's in our heart. A lot of people say you cannot judge a book by its cover. And there's a lot of truth to that. A lot of truth to that. But here Jesus is saying something a little bit different. Okay? He's saying you can know a lot about a book by what's on the cover. That's the whole tree thing. The whole fruit thing. A good tree produces good fruit. Are you with me? A bad tree produces bad fruit. A pupil, when fully trained, will be like the teacher. Our behavior should be a reflection of our faith in Jesus Christ. If that's not what's happening, that's a problem. Clear and simple. Plain and simple. If it's not, that's a problem. That's what Jesus is saying right here in plain English for us. He couldn't be any clearer. Grapes don't grow on briar bushes. And figs don't come from thorn bushes. Are you okay? You all right? Sure? Should I keep going? Okay. <laughs> I just want to ask. Okay, here's the bottom line. Our lives should be a reflection of our Christian faith and not a contradiction to it. Bottom line. Okay, last but not least, okay, the parable of the two foundations. Um, I know that you've heard of this. This, this is a very famous parable. In fact, um, 
one of the deacons texted this morning in, in our thread. There's a VBS song. The wise men built his house upon a rock, house upon a rock, VBS song, right? All right, so I know you know that. Jesus uses this parable uh, as a conclusion to everything we've just read. He uses this to wrap it up. This is his wrap up. This parable is a giant exclamation point for what we just learned, right? And not just that, this is a kind of a play on words, but it's also a giant explanation point. Not just exclamation point, but explanation point. It gives us an explanation of why everything we just learned in the Beatitudes and in the laws of the kingdom, why those are important. Listen to verses 46 through 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Boy, is that a good question? Right? Is that a good question? And that's what he's asking the disciples. That's what he's asking this whole group of disciples. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on rock. And when the flood occurred, the torrent could not shake it. The torrent burst against the house and could not shake it. But it had been, because it had been what? Well built. It was on the rock. In verse 49, he does the antithesis of that. But the one who has heard and has not acted on my words, the first one is the one who heard him and acted on his words, the one who hears me and does not act upon my words, act accordingly, it is like a man who built his house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately what happens? It collapsed. And the ruin of that house was great. There's really not much that I could add to that, but of course you know I will, right? I'm going to add to that. But it's just a summary. Here's my summary. If we claim Jesus as Lord, we will live by his teachings. Does that make sense? We will act upon his words, even the what ones, right? And when we do that, we are building our lives on solid rock, the solid rock that is Jesus Christ. So when life goes sideways, as it often does, right? We know that. When life goes sideways and the floods of life burst against us, our house will not fall. Our faith will not falter. Our lives will stand and we will not be shaken. Somebody say that. We will. We will. That's right. Why? Because our foundation is secure. Our foundation is secure. The pupil is not above the teacher. The pupil listens and obeys the teachings of leader. We can say, well, that's that kind of Christian. I'm this kind of Christian. No, that's the only kind of Christian. Jesus is the teacher, right? Jesus is our example. Jesus is our Lord. And Jesus is our rock, our sure foundation. And all God's people said, amen.